Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this New Year's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. Not New Year's edition, in the New Year edition. Carrie, help me out. What, how am I supposed to say we're this? We're back. We're back, man. We're, we're back. better than ever. We're back in the New Year. There we go. We're back in the New Year. I'm Marcos Bolitsis. I'm here with Carrie Alleveld. We are your host for Daily Coast The Brief, our weekly show about politics. And boy, 2022 is going to be quite the year. Carrie. So much fun. It's going to be so much fun. And scary. And fun and scary and terrifying and exciting. And the possibilities are endless, but the danger is real. We have yet again, as usual, the most important election in our lifetimes, all caps, trademark, little TM in there, because it's the reality. Every election is the most important election in our lifetime. We have a Senate map that is tough but winnable. And then we have two cycles where the Senate map is rough. So we don't win it now, we're in trouble. We win it now, we can do things like get rid of the filibuster. We can have statehood for Washington, D.C. and maybe Puerto Rico. Lots Asterisk. of things can happen. We might be able to get rid of the filibuster or even create a carve out for it, maybe not get rid of it, even without winning seats. It's still possible this year. Anyway, that was just a little answer. Fun. So we have a lot of possibility, but it's also the first midterm in a new president's election. And historically, that means on average about a 35 seat loss in the House. Historically, on average. Now, we can argue this is a a historical year, perhaps the way it was in 2002 after 9-11, when uh, when George Bush's Republican Party actually won seats in the House. Very historically atypical. Now, we have covid we have Donald Trump. We have so many wild cards. And so we're going to spend all year really examining what the polls are telling us, what the sort of situation on the ground is telling us, who the candidates candidates are. We're going to be fundraising for, for candidates, for grassroots organizations, doing hard work on the ground to win these elections in places like Georgia, Arizona, but also Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida. So we have a basically an action-packed year. Um, Today, we're going to start a little bit talking about that. We're also going to have later on in this show, as our guest, we're going to have Dave Newart. He's a Daily Coast writer. He is the nation's preeminent expert on malicious and extremist groups. And of course, they've been in the news lately because of the January 6th anniversary. And uh, we found out that the Department of Justice now has a special division focused on domestic terrorism. We're going to talk to Dave about how that might be affecting groups like the Proud Boys, the uh, Oath Keepers, these, these sort of extremist groups, how that is impacting them and how dangerous they remain moving forward. But before we get to Dave, Carrie, this is a new year. And Joe Biden spoke on the anniversary of January 6th. And he seemed to set the agenda, right? The Democratic messaging and agenda moving forward into this election cycle. What was your take on Joe Biden's speech? Yeah, this is this is a new day in the Biden administration. I think there was some small question about whether, you know, this more combative, um, candid, 
president, you know, making the case against not only Donald Trump, but also most Republicans um, that they are anti-democratic, uh, that that um, their lies incited the attack on the Capitol, things that like liberals, we all agree with. It's like, yeah, we all agree with that. But there are some people who don't want to hear that. There are some people who actually may have voted for Biden um, because they didn't like Donald Trump, uh, but maybe also, you know, voted for some down ticket Republicans, even though they voted against Trump, who don't want to hear that the Republican Party is no longer a party. It's a cult in thrall to Trumpism and not just Trump. I mean, you know, there are cracks where Trump says something like, hey, you should go get your booster shots. And he gets booed. I mean, you know, this happened twice. Right. It's happened twice. Right. I'm I'm actually surprised he doubled down on it because he's gotten booed both times. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is this is a um, this is no longer a political party being run by leaders. It is a it is a cult um, that's, you know, enthralled to Trump, but really enthralled to Trumpism. And um, they they are the they are the base is running the show. Right. Um, And. Joe Biden was the the most passionate. I'm sure most people I'm not going to spend too much time on that speech because he's actually giving another one right now at this very moment in Georgia where he's going to make the case, I think, for he's going to take it beyond the January 6th case of Trump did this. He's lied. He's a defeated president. He lost legitimately. Um, and you can't love your country only when you win, which is what he said on, G- on a January 6th speech, right? Um, he's going to go beyond that today in Georgia and talk ab- and make the case further for, you know, this is an existential fight for the, for, for the soul of our country. And we need to protect access to the ballot box by passing voting legislation. And we have to make a carve out for the Senate filibuster, at least for the voting legislation to get through, right? So that the the Senate minority can't block the majority from getting through voting rights legislation that would that would federalize basic access to the ballot box for every state, right? I mean, it's the Republicans who are trying to take away access, who are trying to trim it down. And Democrats are just saying, hey, we just want this to be fair for everybody. We want there to be, you know, a certain number of days that you can do, um, you know, pre-voting, you know, early access. We want to have, you know, a certain number of drop boxes. We want to be able to do mail-in voting. There is a, in, in the legislation that currently exists, there is a there is a voter ID uh, requirement, but for, for states that want to have it, but it's it's very liberal in terms of what will accept for you to validate yeah. yourself as as being a voter. So in any case, I mean, the, just to give you a sense, a taste of what uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden are doing right now in Georgia as we speak, they went to Atlanta they have, um, you know, gone to Ebenezer Baptist Church. They laid wreaths at the uh, um, foot of the gravestone of uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, his wife. And um, Kamala Harris, in her, you know, uh, speech introducing Biden, said Senate Republicans have exploited arcane rules to block these bills. 
she said, our, gener- our grandchildren will not ask, how did you feel, but what did you do? And we cannot tell them that we let a Senate rule stand in the way of our fundamental freedom. So she was already laying the groundwork for that. And what little I caught of the Biden speech, he said, you know, they, and I'm sure he meant Republicans, they want chaos to reign and we want the people to rule. Hear me plainly. The battle for the soul of America is not over. So it wasn't a one-off speech on January 6th. It's a new day for the Biden administration. They're going to prosecute this case throughout the year as they try to still address things like COVID-19, you know, um, making sure everybody has the tools they need in order to deal with a pandemic that's completely unpredictable and manages to sprout up on new occasions all the time. And also, I'm sure they're going to try to get some version of the Build Back Better bill back. But that's no longer the priority. I think they see very clearly what a lot of us were really worried about last year, which is that they could they could piddle away the rest of 2022 trying to get that bill and never address the thing that can help save our democracy. And I don't think they're going to make that mistake anymore. It's it's a different it's a different feel. There's, there's going to be so many issues that are going to be litigated this election cycle, right? And we're not going to get to them today. Things like um, COVID restrictions and Republicans exploiting parental frustration at school restrictions, school clothing, uh, closings and remote learning and things like that. Those are going to be factors. They were factors in Virginia and New Jersey in last year's election. I mean, we had it's obvious that Republicans see a winner there. They're going to exploit that. You have this whole school transparency thing, which is a new code word for banning black authors from school libraries and and squelching public education. We know that there's direct correlation between education status and how somebody votes, right? So it's in the Republican Party's interest to actually not educate people, quite literally. Those are all going to be factors. We're going to talk about those throughout the the coming months, undoubtedly. Right now, though, I want to focus on, on Joe Biden really hammering Donald Trump in a way that I think is unprecedented for a sitting president to attack the previous president. He didn't use Donald Trump's name smartly, but it was clear that's who he was talking about. He referenced, I think, the former president several times. Oh, like 16, I think. (laughs) He said the former president, I think, 16 times during that speech, if I remember correctly. So. The there was there was a bit of a, a rallying effect for I think for some of us liberals have been frustrated at the tame response to the insurrection. I mean, when when we are when we depend on Liz Cheney to drive that narrative forward, you know, things are a little, <laughs> a little depressing. But he seemed to give voice to a lot of that anger and frustration and fear about the state of our democracy. From a political standpoint, electoral standpoint, what do you think Joe Biden was speaking to? Was he was it was it simply rallying the base moment or is there a broader strategy that you might be seeing in his words? Oh, I think it's both. I mean, liberals were desperate, you know, for this to happen. Democrats were desperate for this to happen. And we've talked about Joe Biden's approvals. And I've made the point several times that, you know, he's not just lost ground among independents, right? He's down double digits from last spring among Democrats. And so you have to wrap, we cannot, see, I'm very much of the frame of mind that we have to do both. We have to both win this conversation, this debate over what's happening right now in the country and what's most important. We have to win that with swing voters, um, those suburban voters, right, who are who are not living in a parallel universe that is like 
completely off the rails, right? They're, they're at least grounded in reality. And they're probably slightly fiscal conservative and would rather vote Republican. But they need we need to win the debate with them over whether or not the Republican Party is salvageable and, and how you know detrimental and what a threat it is to the country at the same time. Joe Biden needs to rally the base. I mean, there were there's a there were a group of there were about a handful of, you know, Black Lives Matter aligned, you know, um, groups, voters of color. Um, you know, they've been registering voters down there in Georgia. Um, and in particular, you know, we had Ense Ufat on what at some point last year, the New Georgia Project. And, you know, she was specifically saying, listen, President Biden, don't come here and give some sort of, you know, platitudes ridden speech with no action plan, with no, you know, real grit to it. And they were they were pressing the president to if he was going to come down there, which they which they had already announced he would and they had already committed to doing. He better come with the goods. Right. He better not just like get out there. And they said, we're not even going to attend this um you know, this, uh, this speech. And so, you know, they are putting the pressure directly on the White House to really make good on, you know, damn, if they don't, you know, go down in flames trying to get this passed. I don't know. I don't know if we can convince uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin to do this, but it looks like the White House is going to put a full court press. They are framing this in the context of a historical battle for the soul of the country. And if you don't feel the weight of that while you're deciding whether you're going to protect some precious Senate rule that the segregationists you know, senators used in this in the 60s to try to block legislation and have used historically, you know, um, racist politicians have used historically in America to try to block every equal rights, um, equal voting access bill that has come up. Right. Um, I've like lost myself and where I'm going. Oh, I know. So I think this is both a rallying cry for the base and, pros- and and the White House starting to prosecute this case that they're going to prosecute throughout the year trying to win swing voters and convince them what a threat Republicans are to the country. And that is an absolute necessity because what we know about the pandemic politically is it's completely unpredictable. And the Biden administration hasn't been perfect, but it's been competent. And it has tried really hard to provide the nation with the tools that it needs to, you know, um, to to make it past this. And we are seeing in the polling now that, um, you know, a recent uh, Associated Press NORC poll just showed that the the pandemic has receded in people's estimation of what the sort of their chief concern is and that um, the economy and financial issues and we had a Daily Coast civics survey in October that showed a very similar uh, vibe, which is, you know, at this point, voters are more concerned about the economy and financial issues. And I think the voters who, you know, are really con- were really concerned about COVID feel like they have the tools to survive this thing if they if they happen to catch it. Um, as many as, you know, is happening now among many people who have followed the rules and done everything right and gotten v- vaxxed and boosted and worn masks, right? Because uh, Omicron is just so transmissible. So if if we're in a situation, which we are, uh, I believe, based on the polling, uh, and not just one poll, but several polls, 
where the economy is starting to take precedence over COVID. And I know that they're not unrelated, but people seem to have started to separate out you know, the health aspects and the health downsides of COVID with how it's faring, how it's playing onto the economy, how it's, how it's uh, reverberating through the economy, right? If we're in that situation, we better not just hope and pray that the economy gets better. And Joe Biden only has so much control over that, right? The, the, the administration only has so much control over how much it can um, reduce the effects of COVID on the economy. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, is that in many ways, the economy is booming, but people are still yeah. worried about pocketbook issues, right? I just want to be clear that Joe Biden has created more jobs in his first year, I'm pretty sure, than any president on record at this point, right? right. Um, so, you know, people are quitting jobs in droves because there's opportunity, because there's they can go jobs. and get better jobs, yeah. right? More money, right? So, but people are still concerned about inflation, and, and Republicans are going to talk about inflation until they're blue in the face. And we don't want to be having that debate, right? We want to be having a debate about what a threat they are to the country because they're extreme positions, because they want abortion to be outlawed in the country, because they believe that everyone should have as many guns as they want. And at the same time that they're stoking chaos in the system, right? Because they voted against all of the um, all of the help, the pandemic help, the money, the funds um, to help schools get back open, to help people get back to work, to help states and locales deal with the pandemic. All the Republicans voted against the American Rescue Plan. Right. So we want. We want to be, and they installed the Supreme Court, which, which is getting ready to do a lot of damage this year, right? Oh, that's a, really a big wild card. Big Supreme wild card is, is how Roe v. Wade and it's eliminating. Right. One of the frustrations with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema is that we could have had Build Back Better passed last March. And then we could have spent all of 2021 selling the benefits of the these two major between the the stimulus bill, the, the rescue plan and build back better. We could have spent all of 2021 selling the benefits of democratic governance. Instead, what people saw was democratic infighting. And it's really particularly frustrating when I'm going to put scare quotes. Democratic infighting really means that the entire Democratic Party versus two a-holes in the Senate that are doing, you know, they're being trolls for the sake of being trolls, right? They can't even, they can't even say, this is what we'll pass. Good. Let's just pass it. And then we'll, we'll leave the rest of the stuff behind, right? They shift the goalposts. They, they get all, they agree to something, then they take it away. And then they're all cagey. And then Kristen Cinema disappears for, you know, a month. And like, she's we, got marathons. She's got marathons. There's a lot of exercising to do. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so now I, I, I saw Joe Biden in a lot of ways is trying to like get away from that again. Like, okay, you know what? We, we you, sorry about that. sorry you saw some of our internal mess like that was embarrassing like let's really now focus back on the real enemy and yeah Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are damaging they're damaging to the nation to the Democratic Party branch or election chances next year they are a menace to our party but they are only a menace because the Republican Party is even worse. And so Joe Biden has tried to shift back. And I know it's, it's, it's going to be a hard case to make, Carrie, right? It's hard to go to voters saying, trust us and elect more of us. 
even though we couldn't get stuff passed, because nobody's going to sit there and look, well, the Senate filibuster and you need 60 votes. And, and these well, let's two- remember, they they don't have to say even though we didn't get stuff passed because they did get stuff passed. Right. So we can this just is, drop yeah. that part. <laughs> so, anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So that's I think what's going to start happening. Right. Is is really focusing on the accomplishments that were made, plus than casting the Republican Party as the actual enemy. And, and so I think Joe Biden would want nothing more than to never mention the words Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema again this year, so that everything he says is either in, in how great his party is or how dangerous the Republican Party is. And that's the, the conversation that hopefully we can have moving forward. So, I mean, Schumer says he's going to have a vote. Cinema and Manchin are saying that that they're not going to allow a rules change, even though that the, the voter rights bill was written by Joe Manchin. Yep. And it's actually good for something yeah, written good. by Joe Manchin. So despite the fact that he changed assume, it, it's pretty good. Yeah, it is better than anybody expected to come from him. Yep. None of it matters if he can't pass it. But there's, there's sort of a hope that at least his ego will say, like, OK, my, I want to pass my bill. And. So if it fails, it would be horrible for a million reasons. But there's a point where you just got to move. You just got to move on. Like it's okay, build back better. What will you take? Oh, you know, it's just this rump of a bill. Freaking pass it. Like we're done. I think at this point with the elections looming, trying continuing to drag out this internal battle with a party. This is what happened in 2009, 2010, where the conversation just dragged on well into the election cycle, and and it just killed democratic enthusiasm engagement excitement we didn't turn out to vote as as a as a people i turned out to vote we didn't turn out as a people and it absolutely killed us and we're still suffering the effects all this gerrymandering you see today is because of the 2010 republican landslide victories that came because at the time it was joe lieberman and um conrad burns and ben nelson and Bill Nelson, they were the ones dragging out. Go ahead. If there's if there's one kind of silver lining to how, how badly they gerrymandered things in 2010, it's that it turns out as they've been trying to gerrymander in 2021, it's almost impossible for them to make it worse. So the preliminary, <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad, right? So <laughs> we, we thought that they were going to gerrymander themselves this year into into a House majority, right? And so far, you know, I mean. Dave Dave Wasserman of the of Cook Political Report has handicapped all this stuff, and it's not completely done map because there are still some court battles to be had in places like North Carolina, um, Florida, you know, hasn't Ohio, done the map yet. Florida, yeah, hasn't so done the map yet, right, so, yeah. exactly. But but on par, it's not near as bad as we thought it would be. And if and in fact, um, it seems to be slightly better for Democrats than the gerrymander was in um, 2010. So I I just want to I just want people to know, because we had we heard really doomsday reports about that. It's it you know, it's not as bad as it was. It doesn't mean things aren't still slanted deeply in favor of Republicans. It just means that Democrats still have a fighting chance this year. So, yeah, they're, yeah. they're going to have to win on actual people voting as opposed to winning on just simply redrawing the maps. And that that in itself is a victory. Now, it does mean that they, they solidified their districts. So there's a lot fewer yep. vulnerable Republicans. So we're not able to pick up. I mean, this is not going to be a Democratic wave year in the best of circumstances. It's just not going to be a Democratic wave year. But let's say a couple of years, a couple of cycles down the road, 
even in the best year, we just are not going to be able to make massive wave gains given their maps. That, that's just the reality. But they did not draw themselves the majority, which it was the worst case scenario moving into it. So, yeah, I think we're going to talk about that in a future episode as well, because it really bears looking, especially once all the maps are drawn. Um, and there's still like Florida's a big one. New York's a big one. We still have a bunch of real big potential yet gerrymanders that will provide the final math. But as it stands right now, it's looking pretty good. So, Carrie, our guest is in the green room. So let's bring him in. Uh, our guest is Dave Newart. He is a staff writer at Daily Coast. He is a national, if not the national expert on militia and extremism movements in the United States. Uh, he's written a ton of books on the topic, incredible intellect and knowledge on the topic. David, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, you guys. How's it going? Good. How are you? Surviving the pandemic. (laughs) Okay. Well, Uh, that's that's worth something, actually, quite a bit. So, So David, sort of the big question I think we have just to kick off the conversation is we just had the the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection in which these militia movements played a major role. Over the last year, as investigations have been going on, we've been getting, you know, we've been hearing more and more about how involved they were in the planning and execution of the insurrection. And now, of course, there's, there's you know, they're flipping on each other and, and there's, there's the Department of Justice is digging in deeply. So let me just start with what role did they play? What do we know about January 6th and the militia movement? Well, I think the the Patriot movement, which is the larger sort of generic movement that that the that the militia movement is frequently identified with, was the nexus of the entire insurrection. As far as you know, the the mob that attacked the Capitol. Uh, I mean, you you heard them call each other patriots uh, as they were attacking the Capitol and as they were entering the Senate and, you know, they refer to their, their wing of the uh, DC jail where they're being held as the Patriot wing. This is, and you know, the, you mean, the, entire, you mean the Patriots who were defecating in the Capitol? Is that the yeah, yeah, yeah okay, right. Confederate flags? And I, I don't yeah. think that Biden reference was a mistake, by the way. Anyway, go ahead, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, we had two major uh, far right, Patriot movements or organizations uh, involved in the actual planning of it. And that was the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Uh, There is a third uh, group that uh, calls themselves uh, First Amendment Patriots that apparently was also involved in the planning. And they are, you know, they're all (laughs) being very carefully investigated. There aren't any, haven't been any First Amendment patriots arrested yet, but they are currently under investigation for their role in planning. And, uh, you know, the, the the FBI is still arresting people for this. Um, every week they're arresting new people. And, you know, Garland's speech uh, the other week, uh, sort of asking everybody for patience on it, was generally right because this is the most complex uh, prosecution and investigation in American history. And uh, it's not going to be something that we can handle easily overnight. There's also been, a lot, I think, a lot of concern about um, 
the lack of terrorism charges and that sort of thing. Uh, but in reality, they actually have been charging people uh, with the, the obstruction charge with which they are in charging the vast majority of these uh, people who are being held is carries a terrorism enhancement. And it's the, and it actually is it has, carries the same penalties as a sedition charge, but sedition is harder to prove. It's harder to uh, establish the, the motivations involved. So it doesn't feel it's it's good as a sedition charge would feel, but in the end, the result is the same. Yes, and easier to get there. And I think there are going to actually be some sedition charges here eventually uh, when it comes to uh, some of these actors that haven't been arrested yet, uh, which includes the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and some of his close compatriots, and possibly even Roger Stone. Ooh, that would be fun. Oh, can you yeah. can you clue us in uh, just based on what you're saying right now as to where you think they are in the progression, the de- Department of Justice is in the progression of these arrests and prosecutions? Because, you know, as everybody knows, you kind of start lower on the food chain, right? You yes. start with the people who like trespassed in the Capitol, but weren't right. violent. Then you go right. after That's the people charges. who were violent in the Capitol. And then you're right. working your way up to people who are actually involved in the planning and the, yeah. you know, plotting and planning of this, this thing. Where, where are you, where is the justice department in that food chain that, you know, with, with the potential of Trump being at the very top of it, but you know that's a we're a long way from there. But wh- where are we in that? Well, they are right now. They have been mostly processing through a lot of the you know a lot of the early cases have been the easier ones, uh, which have involved lesser charges, and so we've seen some fairly light sentences come out of that. But we've also seen some serious sentences handed down for some of the bigger actors, including the. Uh, QAnon shaman Jacob Chansley. What do you get? He he wound up getting five years. So, um, I'll take it. I mean, for yeah. someone with you know with no priors, right? I don't think he had any priors. I mean, that you know. Yeah, that's right. Five that's years, correct. But. So a lot of these folks are, um, you know, it's the, the it, so far. I would say most of the sentences uh, have been commensurate with the the crimes that were committed, and um, and and. Chansley, remember, pleaded guilty. A lot of these folks haven't gone to trial yet. Uh, in fact, none of them have. So th- they are working up that food chain. I mean, one of the problems, for example, with the Oath Keepers case is that it is complex, but there is a trial date uh, that's set for, in, in, I believe, uh, March, or, or I believe it's in March, for the, for the real, that's the real major conspiracy case. It involves... Uh, eight actors who were specifically they have evidence of their conspiracy to to engage in the the siege of the capital and um and as those cases progress some of those people are going to flip and be providing more information on people further up the food chain so we're really in this sort of <laughs> uh, zone where it's it's not really clear exactly how it's going to go. But so far, it, you know, the, the cases, the, the judgments that have come down, even from Trump-appointed judges, have been pretty tough on these people. 
I mean, the, you know, the, the Trump appointed judges were the ones who basically knocked the lawyers down in their attempts. The defense attorneys uh, were attempting to argue that, well, you can't, this obstruction charge that you're charging people with was originally intended to, you know, prosecute cases of uh, witness tampering. And, and that sort of thing. And so it wasn't really intended for this broad of an application. And the judges, uh, and, and that's accurate, but it also is, doesn't accurately portray what the law itself says, which is that, you know, the, the law did have these penalties proven uh, written into it for more violent activity, even though mostly the law wasn't used to prosecute such cases. So, so is the theory here then that that they try to obstruct a a what a valid governmental proceeding? Yeah, the government yeah. proceeding, the the Congress is counting of the the ballots. That's that's exactly the proceeding that they obstruct or attempting to obstruct. And this is something that actually Liz Cheney pointed out is that the the, the case that they're building does lead to Donald Trump because he too clearly engaged in this obstruction. So uh, it, it, a lot of this is, you know, it does take time. The law is not something that ha we can just wave like a magic wand. We have to respect its processes as is the investigation. You know, these guys are trying assiduously to hide everything that they did and are refusing, you know, there's been, there's already obstruction of the investigations just in the form of, you know, Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. We're talking to David Newert. He's a staff writer at Daily Coast and a nationwide expert on extremism, move, the extremist movement. Uh, David, we know that Donald Trump had these sort of legal quote experts giving this, 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 this quasi legal yeah. Excuse for how they were going <laughs> to delay things and not not yeah. not, oh, yeah. not recognize yeah. certain yeah. states. Yeah, and so that was for the coup plot. Part of it. <clears throat> the coup plot, right? Yeah. That was, <laughs> we've seen those memos and we have a general idea how that worked. Yeah, then that was, that was the inside game. So yeah, the inside was, game. That was and, know, and, the, and the mob was the outside game. Do we know where that nexus is? Who connected those two, those two, that's, the inside and the outside game? That's what we're waiting. I think that's what the investigation is driving to try to find, uh, to see what the nexus between them was. Uh, we do know that, that Roger Stone uh, may have been part of that nexus. Uh, because he was very close to the Oath Keepers all that day and in the days leading up to it. We and, of course, know. Donald Trump pardoned him for yeah. other crimes. So yeah. he's also close to Donald Trump, yes. He is, yes. And we also know that uh, there were a number of these patriots, particularly the guys from the – uh, the First Amendment patriots who were actually uh, there in the, the war room at the hotel in D.C. Uh, where Trump and his minions were plotting both, I think, the inside and the outside games. We don't know yet what exactly was going on in that war room, but I expect as the investigation proceeds, we will be finding that out. I have sort of an ancillary question, which I think is, you know, equally as important as whether or not, you know, as getting to the bottom of who plotted this thing, who was involved, who actively, you know, pushed it and planned for it, et cetera. 
um, as and, along with who carried it out, right? Yeah. Uh, but as these uh, groups are getting a heck of a lot of spotlight on them, um, the Oath Keepers, and not the type of spotlight they really want, I don't think, which is prosecutorial spotlight, the FBI, right? Uh, the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, et cetera. Um, are they, is this starting to make it harder for them in terms of, um, you know, being above ground on recruitment, um, getting money, getting the things they need to grow their movement? I mean, the hope of any one of these prosecutions is that, of course, you drive these movements underground, you make it harder for them to fund themselves, you make it harder for them to recruit. And I wonder if you're seeing any of that effect yet um, in your reporting. Um, Tragically, I think we're seeing the opposite effect, That, uh, which is what we saw, uh, for instance, uh, in the story post that uh, that ran this week that I wrote about the school board race in Eatonville, Washington, where we saw a woman elected to the school board there who was closely associated. She was part of this uh, militia group. She, 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 she homeschools her kids and yet got elected to the school board. She's very closely tied to leader of the Washington Three Percenters, who was also on the Eatonville school board, and uh, these Washington three percenters have gotten a mayor elected. They've they've infiltrated um, Washington state uh, local offices, like in rural uh, Washington, right? Yeah, and yeah. The, you know the 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 really good Washington Post story that that I uh, used as a springboard. You know, talked to this couple that had tried that had done all the research on this woman who was running for the school board and really looked into the you know the spread of extremism uh, within their own community and they were planning to expose all this to the woman but the more they looked at the situation the more they realized that those associations were actually helping her with the community. Mm. And so the problem is the, what's happened afterwards is the way Republicans have run to embrace the insurrection and the insurrectionists uh, and build, make them out to be martyrs and patriots and uh, to pretend that, you know, what happened was, you know, it was actually Antifa or BLM or no, maybe it was the, the FBI <laughs> running a, a, a secret uh, false flag operation, right? Depending, you know, it just depends on what conspiracy yeah. theory they want to trot out for their re- whatever rationale they're tossing out at us. And uh, but unfortunately, it, it's actually very effective. Uh, it's been very effective among people who are already Republicans. And so, you know, this couple that w- had done all this research decided we're not going to announce it because it may actually help her to expose her as uh, to expose her connections to these extremists. And that's the, the really uh, problematic reality that I don't think anybody is dealing with is that these beliefs mainly because of right-wing media and it's ongoing gaslighting of the public about what happened on January 6th. Um, these, you know, these movements are actually gaining cred uh, within the mainstream of the Republican Party. Uh, 
and um, that that's really a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always find it really interesting that they both want to take credit for the insurrection, and I was there, and you know, but it was Antifa. I mean, it's yeah. like they, they were patriots, even, but they were Antifa. You know, yeah, like, it's like whatever so they, need they need. Yeah. A, a really quick aside, uh, because you brought up the three percenters. I, I why don't you tell people what that means? Because it's actually kind of interesting and a little scary. Well, three percenters, you know, the, the, they get their name from this right wing myth, this far right wing myth that's been around since I think around 2008. Um, that there, that only three percent of the colonists actually participated in the in the uh, original American Revolution in 1776, and they use that as as their their belief is that they represent the modern three percent of America that's going to stand up and bring about this second. Uh, American Revolution. They, that's why they were going around on January 6th saying, this is our 1776. Uh, this is that, that's what 3% means. It's that, that they plan to be the vanguard and the the people who are going to, the constitution-loving patriots who are going to stand up to uh, the tyrannical government. The constitution, yeah. which gives majority rights to 3%. <laughs> they just, it's got to be the right 3%. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So that's what that's what the name means. Yeah. Um, Carrie, you got something? Well, my only question would be, what do you, what do you think is at this point um, one of the most unrecognized or underreported, which sometimes are the same and sometimes they're not, aspects of what's going on with the January six investigations and these groups. Well, I, I think actually, you know, Marcy Wheeler has been doing a great job over at Empty Wheel writing about this. She's really uh, been a go-to source on what's happening with the investigations because she's been staying on top of the cases and she actually understands the laws that that are being used and, and how prosecutions work. And I think what I, there has there have been a lot of TV lawyers on TV uh, who don't understand things as well as people like Marcy or myself as far as how these prosecutions work, who've been saying things like, well, there's no terrorism charges, there's no sedition charges. And you know, this is really terribly misleading about what the actual state of this investigation is. Um, so I think there has been a lot of misinformation uh, about the, about the state of the investigation. Um, though, you know, it's, I mean, the, the concerns are legitimate and it's always good, I think, to keep the pressure on the Department of Justice because it has a lot of institutional reluctance to proceed with cases like this. Um, you know, it's it's still there's still plenty of Trump appointees within that structure. Let me do something really unfair and ask you what grade you would give the DOJ at this point. Is it a is it a B, B minus, C plus, B plus? I'd give it a, I'd give it a B. You know, um, uh, I would like to have seen things happen faster, and that may not have been possible. But you know, I think if it happened faster, I'd give him an A. But so far, everything's been solid. Uh, everything they've done has been solid. 
And I actually think the the tactic of uh, using the obstruction prosecution instead of sedition charges uh, was really smart. Um, so, means will we can put put these guys away using much more direct uh, applicational law, and we don't have to sit and argue about their motivations all day. So there's no shortage of extremist groups, and the Facebook, the internet's going to make it easy for for uh, obviously new ones to emerge. Uh, I mean, we even see that with Q, where it doesn't matter that they've never ever been right, right? They're going to continue right. growing and, and absorbing other fringe movements. It's been actually fascinated seeing like the flat yeah. earthers suddenly are part of Q. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's actually incredibly yeah. fascinating how it's all become one big umbrella. That said, uh, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are under serious um, investigation and targeting their top leadership. Will they survive as ongoing organizations or is this pretty much the end and their membership will just scatter to new groups? Well, we haven't seen any indication that uh, th- that they've slowed down uh, on membership. Apparently, there were a number of people who, who turned in their memberships after January 6th. But since then, there's actually been fairly steady recruitment on their website. And, um, you know, it's been obvious. I mean, there have been cops, police officers who have been called out for being members of the, Pro- the Oath Keepers uh, that were revealed through uh, hack leaks. Uh, and when confronted with this, they've all been, you know, they've all, said, well, they're just a good patriotic organization, you know, and excused their participation and haven't faced really any kind of consequences for being members of these extremist organizations, which is, you know, that's this is part of the problem, of course, is that uh, these extremists have uh, penetrated uh, the ranks of law enforcement so deeply they, the, and these and law enforcement officers are inclined to see them with a very generous eye, which was what led up to January 6th in the first place. Because all these people, that whole mob out there, they believe the cops were on their side on the day they went to the, the Capitol in D.C. And, you know, they, they'd always, you know, they'd been marching with back the blue rallies and that sort of thing. And... Uh, that was what they were screaming at the Capitol police officers is that you're traitors, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're traitors to the cause. You should be standing up for America, you know, and that was, um, was definitely part of their mentality and it continues to be part of their mentality. And, and, and really the problem is that, that these, that we are not approaching this problem within law enforcement at all seriously, which really raises concerns, I think, about what happens when these guys get violent out in, out in, you know, away from Washington, D.C., um, because I think that there, are go- there is going to be, um, you know, serious incidents of violence. Uh, we've already seen a couple. Um, and I think the police are the law enforcement, which is who the rest of us are counting on to protect us in this situation, um, may not be up to the job at all. As somebody who's been tracking this last question, unless Carrie has something else, 
Last question for me. As somebody who's been tracking this movement for decades now, I think you have a pretty good understanding of what makes them tick and what makes them work and, and potentially what breaks them, what breaks them up. If you had all the power, I'm going to make you power hunk, you're going to have all the power. What would you do to deal with this extremism, uh, these extremist organizations? Uh, well, the first thing I would do is ban Fox News. <laughs> if I were a, if I were a dictator and wanted to fix this, first thing I'd do is ban Fox News um, because they're they're the engine that is driving a lot of this radicalization, uh, and they're enabling its spread into the mainstream. And I think that's really a problem. Yeah, of course, I'd also been Alex Jones and, you know, the, the, the serious dis disinformation artists. And yes, I, I think we should do something about, you know, there has to be something about uh, these, these militias are actually illegal in all 50 states. And it's long past time that we enforce those laws. Uh, so I think that the, those are the kind of steps for, that we actually can take and should take now. Uh, well, I don't know about banning Fox News, but certainly the. the <laughs> yeah, we still have the First Amendment. Yeah. Yeah. Cut the cord. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that, that, that that's actually something, uh, uh, an issue that can be tackled through civic action. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think. You know, I think if we're going to have a pro-democracy movement, uh, one of the aspects of it has to be that we get rid of I mean, it, it's to me, it's just extremely problematic that you're able to fundamentally use, get up and use your these platforms to just blatantly lie, to spread false information directly. And I know that. Court rulings have, particularly in the last 30 years, have found that lying can be protected speech. And I think that's a problem. I don't believe lying should be protected speech um, because we've seen how toxic it is. So, yeah, the deliberate spread of false uh, information um, is something. Yeah, if, if I were a dictator and could change the First Amendment, uh, that would be one of the things I would change. Um, so because that's how, that's how this stuff spreads is, is through conspiracy theories and and propaganda campaigns. Sorry, on a, on a more realistic uh, basis, then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're saying that these groups are already um, illegal in all 50 states. Under under what provision do they do that without running afoul of First Amendment right of um, of uh, assembly laws? Like how how are they made illegal? Well, it's always been illegal. It's it's illegal in all fifty states to have a private army. And, private and army. The courts okay. have upheld those laws since they were first passed in the eighteen nineties. Okay. Um, and th those laws had a reason, you know, it was, that had to do with uh, situations like the Johnson County War with the robber barons who used uh, uh, bands of armed men uh, to attack the the uh, the labor unions. And um, and similar, you know, similar sort of circumstances, and um, so you know because the the country saw back then what could happen if people with a lot of wealth were able to just hire armed men, hire a bunch of armed men to try to get their way, um, and fundamentally that's what these 
bands are. They are private armies. I mean, the, that's really the the nub of the real problem with them. It's not just their extremism and their conspiracism and the sort of threat, but the the reality that you know they they sell themselves as being you know they, their existence is based on the Second Amendment, which it's not. But they they try to claim that, and the reality is that the Second Amendment never intended for a band of uh, unaccountable vigilantes to have that kind of status, uh, because that is and that is the nub of the problem is that they are accountable to exactly no one other than themselves. And we've seen this, of course. I mean, the Oath Keepers, they've had all kinds of criminals <laughs> and bizarre activities going through their ranks over the years. And any time the Oath Keepers, they've tried to hold the Oath Keepers to account for this, uh, Stuart Rhodes goes and says, oh, well, they weren't really members or, oh, you know, this was just, yeah. The, these guys are, they, they always claim that anybody who is engaged in wrongdoing, who's an Oath Keeper, wasn't really a member. And, They're probably uh, Antifa. To do with it. Yeah, they probably were. They were Antifa. Or, or, or undercover FBI agents. <laughs> so, yeah, the Second Amendment literally says well-regulated militia, which is something that yeah. conservatives have somehow, like, they don't read, they don't, they, they've ignored that phrase, and the Supreme Court, unfortunately, has followed along. Dave Newark, thank you so much for joining us. That was incredibly informative. Um, I'm, I, I wish I could say we'll never have you back on because there's not going to be a militia problem, but we know that's not going to happen. So yeah. I'm sure as, as some of these cases are adjudicated and as we get closer to seeing what that nexus was between the inside and the outside game, as you so uh, uh, sort of vividly put it, um, we'll definitely want to have you back on to talk about that when we know more information. Thank you so much for your time. Always good to be here, guys. Thanks. Yeah, Carrie, the, the, that nexus is going to be an absolutely critical point because we, we've seen so much from the Trump side, that inside game, those memos that have been released. And we know that there are people talking. And even Lynn Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney has, has uh, sort of um, teased some of that information. Um, Stephanie Grisham, I think, is talking a lot, right? So we're getting right. a, a picture uh, even even uh, Carrick, Bernard Carrick seems to be blabbing away, which which is surprising given how tight he was with Giuliani there was, and that crowd. There was just news just before we came on and I didn't get a chance to click on the headline, but something about Giuliani starting to talk to the one six committee. Now, whether that's him just giving them the middle finger or whether that's him actually like some doing some sort form of cooperation. I mean, you know, there's no love lost now between Giuliani and Trump because Trump has excommunicated Giuliani. As far as I can tell, he, you know, he, he got really upset with Giuliani and I can't even remember Like I can't keep track of the, like, you know, the back and Giul forth of these. The but. Giuliani asked to be paid. Oh, that right. Was, right. That, oh, what I a mean, sin. What now, a sin. It was some ridiculous number. Like let's uh it was like thirty thousand a day or something ridiculous, right? But he asked right. to be paid and that was I mean, this is the thing. See, you know, Giuliani's not an elected official anymore, right? He was once. <laughs> He's an old man who doesn't have much of a future left. Um, I mean, you know. In my estimation, maybe he's got <laughs> great ideas. I don't know. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm selling him short. But the point is, is that Giuliani didn't need Trump to become famous. Giuliani was famous. He was already America's mayor. Now he's like completely ruined his entire image as far as that's concerned. 
But Giuliani doesn't need to hang on to Trump in order to be in order to have a persona. He already has a persona and he's going to have a persona with or without Trump. So if there is any legal reason for him to be trying to actually cooperate with the January 6th committee in order to like lessen his legal liability, assume that assuming that you know, some actual lawyer is giving him some good advice. And I don't know that to be true. But I'm just saying, like, Giuliani is someone who could nail Trump dead to rights. And Trump has completely stiff-armed him, completely shut him out. So, you know, who knows? I mean, I feel like Giuliani is a little bit of a wild card at this point. But I want to make one of Oh, sorry. Can I make another one? Please. Let me go back to to what David was saying. And, um, you know, uh, just talking about the politics, he wasn't talking about the politics. I want to talk about the politics for a second, yeah, because please. what you hope is that, of course, the Department of Justice and the FBI are doing their thing. Right. And you hope and this wasn't what this wasn't the answer I was hoping for. But you hope that that, that their prosecutions and we have they're not done prosecuting the people who plotted this thing, planned this thing. I don't think they're done prosecuting the three percenters, the Proud Boys and maybe others. Yeah. Um, you hope that that starts to drive them underground a little bit. You hope that that starts to kill their network a little bit, kill kill their ability to to fundraise, right? But at the same time, um, to Dave's point, right? David's point, which is that there are people who are getting elected to positions that are, you know, it helps them to be part of the three percenters or the Proud Boys or whatever. The the case that President Biden needs to make now is he needs to ostracize these people. He needs to make it, you know, not okay for them to be in polite society. They have to become pariahs, right? They have to become the fringe. And the case he is starting to make now has to come down to, you either want to be part of a law-abiding you know, somewhat polite society where we don't just like, if we don't like a policy, bring a gun to someone's house, right? You you either want to be part of a law abiding society that, um, you know, that has a peaceful transfer of power where the uh, voters, the will of the people uh, prevails in election, or you want to be part of the Republican chaos, the fact that they and I, I mentioned him, you know, Biden talking about the patriots who were defecating in the in the Capitol. He said, patriots, I don't think so. And he talked about how they were defecating in the Capitol. I mean, he wants that, I think. And I heard this on another podcast. This isn't totally my own thinking, but like he wants that, I think to be an example of how these people aren't patriots. They're gross. I mean, you know, they're like, they have no respect for the country, no respect for the capital, uh, no respect for the history of this country and, and how, what a proud history it is, even though it's a very flawed one. Um, you know, so I really think um, that uh, that this is the this is the case that Joe Biden is beginning to make. And he's going to have to win on that case. And Democrats are going to have to win on that case as they prosecuted over the next three years, including this year, but also up to the, the 2024 20, uh, elections, presidential election. Um, so that you've got things working, you know, you've got on a Justice Department level, them working on that end. And then on the political level, Democrats working on a different 
from a different standpoint, all going at the same problem at the same time, but from different standpoints, right? Yeah, so make- Joe Biden, a lot of people have been saying he needs an enemy. Like Republicans know how to create enemies and they, they could be fake enemies. MS-13 gang members or Honduran caravans. Um, we actually have real enemies and we need to actually start elevating them as real threats to our republic. So, Carrie, thank you so much. That is our show. We are out of time. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show. Thanks to Kara for all the social media work she does for the show. And thanks to you, Carrie. Thanks to David Newart for joining us as a guest. And thank you, the viewer, the listener, for joining us. We are here every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern on YouTube. And on Wednesday, we have, you know, you can get us on the podcast. Like us, subscribe, do what you do, and whatever you get this, wherever you get this content. We have a hell of a year ahead of us. We're going to be covering the ins and outs of this incredibly important election cycle every week. So looking forward to having you join us every week. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.